We're going to be in Amos chapter 3, verses 1 through 8 today. Amos 3, 1 through 8. Let's go ahead and begin uh, in a word of prayer. Lord, we just pray that you would help us to understand your word. We pray that you might help us to apply it. We pray that you would give to us soft hearts, not hard hearts. We confess that um, even when we know the right thing to do, we do not do it of our own strength because our wills are bent in a direction other than Christ. And that is why we're thankful for the gospel, which restores that which is broken and gives to us a will and desire to do what is right. And so we pray that you might help us in this task today. Conform ourselves to Scripture, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. April 15th, 1912 is a date that you probably know. It's the date that the Titanic sank in the Atlantic Ocean on day four of its maiden voyage. I want to read to you a story uh, from this event that's been retold a number of times. On that ship in the second class section was a man named John Harper who was coming to America to preach at Moody Church. If you had been with John Harper on the Titanic that fateful night, you would have felt a tremendous jolt when the mighty ship collided with an iceberg on the starboard side of her bow. You would have heard the hull plates buckle as an iceberg tore a 300-foot-long gash in the side of the ship. And you may even have heard the panic in the captain's voice when he knew his ship was sinking and he only had enough lifeboats for half of the passengers. If you would have been on deck, you would have seen families torn apart, husbands saying goodbye as they watched their wives and children leave on lifeboats, wives deciding to stay on board to die with their husbands, children waving goodbye to their parents and praying they would see each other again. And you would have seen John Harper kiss his six-year-old daughter goodbye and put her safely in a lifeboat. As the minutes crept by and all the lifeboats were gone, 1,521 people were left on board the sinking ship, including Harper. With every minute that passed, the deck became steeper as the bow plunged under the water. Finally, the ship broke in two, hurling the remaining passengers into the icy depths of the Atlantic. It is said that the ship's lights blinked once, then went out, leaving people to freeze to death in the darkness of the Atlantic. And the few hundred people that were safe in lifeboats could see their husbands, fathers, and many other families as they were shrieking in terror and thrashing in the water trying to gasp for breath. But during this horrific tragedy, God was at work. You see, Harper wasn't afraid to die. He knew that he was going to come face to face with his maker, and he wanted other people to know his Lord and Savior. So, with death lurking over him, Harper yelled to a man in the darkness, Are you saved? No, replied the man. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and ye shall be saved. Harper screamed as he struggled in the dark, cold Atlantic. Then the man drifted apart, the men drifted apart in the darkness, but later the current brought them back together. Weak, exhausted, and frozen, a dying Harper yelled once more, Are you saved? No. Harper repeated once again, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and ye shall be saved. And with that, 
Harper slipped down into his watery grave. The man whom Harper sought to win to Christ was rescued by the SS Carpathia. Because of Harper, he dedicated his life to Jesus Christ right there, two miles above the ocean floor, and lived to tell people that he was Harper's last convert. A dying man preaching to dying men. That is what the passage in front of us is about in Amos chapter 3. Let's go ahead and read the text. Amos chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare bring, spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will fear? Who will not fear? The Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? We're going to be looking at this passage in front of us with uh, the following outline. The outline is on the screen behind me, and it also is on the uh, handout that I gave to you, uh, dividing up the passage into uh, four sections. We have the message that is announced in verse 1, the message stated in verse 2, the message illustrated in verses 3 through 6, and then the message proclaimed in verses 7 through 8. The beginning of this passage today in verse 1 is a, simply a call to attention. We see the phrase here, hear this word. It's a call to pay attention, and it is a call to listen up because something important is coming. He calls Israel to hear this word. Specifically, this word is uh, spoken not for Israel, that is to say, in favor of Israel, but it is spoken against Israel. He says that he preaches this word specifically to the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. Now, why would the Lord bring into verse 1 a simple statement of, listen up, why would he bring the Exodus event into this? It's kind of like, uh, you know, you uh, pull your son aside for a little talk and and you say, uh, son, I want to talk to you for a moment about what you said to your mother, the same mother who cooks your meals for you and takes you to your soccer games and helps you with your homework and does this and does that and does this and does that. It would be one thing if your mother was negligent, but your mother's kindness only heightens the sin against her. It only intensifies what you have done. And in like manner, the the Lord, God, is simply saying, listen up. By the way, I brought you out of Egypt. (laughs) Listen up. Do you remember remember who I am? 
The Lord's kindness and the Lord's long-suffering and the Lord's deliverance of his people only makes Israel's sin that much more egregious. It's like we said last week. The Lord did all of this for you and this? And this is how you thank him? You thank him this way? God has delivered you from Egypt. He has delivered you from slavery. And now the Lord has something to say to you. Hear this word, O Israel. What is that word that the Lord has to say? Well, that's in verse 2. This is the message stated. That is, I will punish you. Having garnered their attention, we now see in verse 2 the ultimate reason that God's judgment is given. We read this. He says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. This would, of course, uh, have been completely unexpected, unanticipated on Israel's uh, part. Israel had assumed that their status would guarantee their safety. And yet we have here that the opposite is true. Their status is guaranteeing judgment against them. Uh, Note later on in the book of Amos, Amos 9 and verse 10 gives us um, a little insight into into this thought that, that the Israelites were having. We read, All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say, Disaster shall not overtake us or meet us. This is what Israel is thinking. Disaster is not going to overtake us. The Lord knows us. We're fine. There's no discipline, no punishment, no anything. We're we're good to go. Their destruction was guaranteed because they presumed upon divine grace. One commentator says this. He says, the logic would be this. You and I are uniquely covenantally bound by the terms of our covenant. It is your responsibility to obey and mine to punish you if you do not. And I and no one else am therefore the one to punish you for your sins. In other words, the Lord is simply saying in verse 2, you didn't think you were going to get away with this, did you? If I could give you perhaps a modern example of this or illustration um, from the Word of Faith movement or the Prosperity Gospel movement, the Prosperity Gospel functions in much the same way. The Prosperity Gospel guy uh, thinks to himself, I belong to God, therefore I will never become ill or sick or face hardships or lose my money or my job or my health or any of those things. Israel was thinking along similar lines. We could never receive anything but good things from the Lord. There is, by the way, a parallel in the New Testament to this particular passage, and that is Hebrews chapter 12. Let's read this passage together. It's verses 5 through 11. God is saying, I am going to uh, bring judgment upon you. And in Hebrews chapter 12, we read this. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. You see this? This is talking to believers that the Lord does discipline his own children. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? 
Are there any sons out there that don't receive discipline from their father? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children, not sons. If God never disciplines you, disciplines you then you're not his son. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who have disciplined us <clears throat> and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, of course, we understand and we rejoice, and it does need to be stated that according to Romans 8.1, there is therefore now what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, if you are a believer in Christ, the Bible teaches unequivocally that you will never perish and that your status before God is dependent upon Christ's status before God, which is flawless and perfect. So Hebrews 12, Amos 3, these passages do not compete with Romans 8.1, but they live in harmony with Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation, and at the same time, When God's children stray from him in this life, God brings us back to himself through chastisement, through punishment. This punishment is not an everlasting punishment. This is not hell. This is not condemnation, but this is something used specifically to draw his children back to himself. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves And he uses this discipline to draw back to himself those who are wandering, which means that the discipline of the Lord is an act of kindness and an act of mercy to draw us back to himself. This is the message that God gives to his people Israel in Amos chapter 3. How do we know that this message is true? Amos begins to defend this message and gives an illustration of the truthfulness of this message in verses 3 through 6. Here we have a, a rather interesting section with a number of rhetorical questions that at first glance seem to be a little bit oddly placed. I mean, how many of you have ever in your Bible reading through the year gotten to the book of Amos and you get to this particular passage and you read these rhetorical questions, and you think to yourself, I have no idea why these things are here. What in the world is is going on with the placement of these particular questions? And, and And the question that we face as we come to this is simply this, what in the world is going on? Well, let's, let's work through this, uh, verse by verse here, and then try to kind of wrap this whole thing together. I want to, I want to give to you, um, uh, a little bit of a help here in the handout that uh, we've given to you today. You will notice that on the left side it says the message illustrated, cause and effect. And then you will notice that I have placed a little E and a little C next to the different statements there because that is, of course, for the cause and for the effect. Each of these seven statements in verses 3 through 6 
uh, includes uh, one cause and one effect each, each time. And the first one here that we have is uh, a rather common and everyday event, and that is that the cause is that they have agreed to meet together, and the effect is that they walk together. Okay? Do, do people walk together unless they've agreed to meet? Um, this is, in fact, so basic and so elementary and so simple that one wonders, why was this bothered to be included in this particular passage? Well, that's the first one. The second one is that if a lion has no prey, the effect or result will be that he will not roar. Okay, the lion, as he is about to pounce at the very last moment on his prey, he, does, he doesn't roar ahead of time, but at the very last moment he roars, and that kind of puts the prey in, in a stunned position of what's going on here, I better freeze, and then he pounces on his prey. The next one is that if a young lion has received no food, he, the effect will be that he does not cry out. Uh, this is kind of a, perhaps a victory cry as the food is brought into the den and it's brought before him and then he cries out or he roars because of this food. The next one is that if no trap is set for the bird, the effect will be that the bird does not fall into the snare. Okay? These are said, of course, negatively. We could say them positively. Uh, if the bird does fall into the snare, then that means that a trap was set. It, the next one is if nothing walks into the snare... The effect will be that the snare will not be triggered. Next one, number six, is if a trumpet is blown in a city. This is a warning trumpet, by the way, that an enemy is attacking. If a trumpet is blown in a city, then the effect will be that the people are what? Afraid. People are going to be fearful if a trumpet is, is blown, saying, saying uh, an army is coming. And finally, the seventh one is that if the Lord declares it, then the effect will be that disaster comes to a city. These are all basic maxims that that everybody knows. They are so self-evident that it's hardly worth explaining them. Oh yeah, I know that. That makes sense. It's so obvious why, why are they given here then? Uh, actually, in fact, th- this, the point of this section is so simple that some may even miss the point because they're trying to make it more complicated than it needs to be. Okay, what is the point of verses 3 through 6? Here's the point. Every cause has an effect and every effect has a cause. That's all he's saying. He's just giving illustrations to demonstrate that if this happens, this will happen. If that happened, it meant be this be because this happened. Or if, if you want to say it even simpler than that, and you could write this in the margin there if you'd like to, this section of text means this, nothing happens by accident. That's all that it means. Now, I do want to do one thing. I, I did say that all of these are very self-evident. And they require almost no explanation because uh, it's apparent to us that these are all true. But, but I, I, I do want to look at one of them a little bit extended beyond what we've already looked at them. Um, 
Because there may be some who would say, I see what you're saying about all these being self-evident, but there's one in the list that just doesn't belong for me. (laughs) There's one in the list that doesn't seem self-evident. There's one in the list that that seems, in fact, very counterintuitive. That it it would it seem like this could not possibly be the case. And so I want to look at that one. Do you know what one that is? The last one, number seven, verse six. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? What is going on? I mean, it it seems self-evident that if a trumpet is blown in a city because you're about to be under attack, it's pretty self-evident that people are going to be fearful in that city. Is it self-evident that if disaster has overtaken a city, it was because the Lord has done it? Ah, how do I reconcile that in my own heart? This hits hard if you have personally gone through a disaster in your own life. And it may be something even that you wrestle through, have wrestled through, and try to deny. But as believers in Christ, we must come to agree with what this verse is saying. And this verse is simply saying this, God is sovereign. God is completely, not partially, but completely in control of everything. There is nothing that snowballs outside of God's control, and he says, this, got away from, this one got away from me. I was, I was trying to restrain what was going on here, and it just got out of control, and now I can't reel it back in. God does not say that. God sits on his throne. He's not pacing back and forth. He's not anxious. He's not saying, I hope that this happens today. I hope that they respond this way. He sits on his throne And he's completely free of anxiety and worry because everything is under his control. His sovereign hand is over all events. I did an entire series at the 9 o'clock service um, several months back on uh, theodicy, uh, which, as you know, is what is oftentimes referred to as the problem of evil. How does evil exist in a world, uh, in God's world? What is God's relationship to evil? How does he control, manage, all of those kinds of things? And so I'm not going to rehash all of that here. Um, that's something that I think is on uh, online, um, and you can go back and, and listen to that. But what I will say, for the sake of this passage in front of us, 
is that God is just as much in control when disaster strikes as when prosperity abounds. He is equally in control in both scenarios. God is not in some cosmic arm wrestling match with Satan as, as the, the duelists would have us to believe. And, and today God is, is, is winning, but then Satan gets the upper hand and is back and it's fourth. And, and I lost my job, so Satan must have been in the upper hand. And, and I got a raise, so God must be in the upper hand today. No, God is completely and sovereignly in control of all things, whether it's prosperity whether it's disaster, whatever is going on, God has not lost control of what's going on. God is as much in control of the tornado as he is of the sunset or the rainbow. And while both accomplish different purposes, neither escapes his grasp. Now, I will say that instead of causing great alarm, this should cause great peace. Because I know that nothing will happen to me unless the Lord wills it. What do I have to fear? If I face some sort of tragedy, or if I am faced with my own death, that was in the Lord's plan for me. If the Lord wills for me to go through great suffering, then he promises to give the necessary enduring grace that is required to get through that particular tragedy. Taken together then, this whole list, verses 3 through 6, tells us that nothing, including the disaster of a city, happens without a cause. you You can be comforted that whatever happens to you has happened because it was in God's sovereign plan. And he has a purpose for it, an intention to use it for his glory and for your good. Everything that happens in the world has a cause. And the point then of all seven statements is that what Amos is trying to do is he is trying to simply get Israel to agree to one proposition. It's almost like a decoy of sorts. (laughs) He's saying... Well, if this happens, then this caused it. If this happened, then this caused it. And they're like, yeah, that's true. I, yeah, everything that happens, there's a cause, a reason. And so what Amos does is he gets them to first sign on, to, to, to sign off on the statement, do you believe that every effect has a cause? Yes, I, Israel, believe that every effect has a cause. Okay, now that he's gotten their signature on the paper, okay, he's, he's, he's now going in, for the kill, so to speak. He's going in to say, well, then you must also believe this. You signed it saying that you believe this, so you must also believe this particular thing. What trap then does he lure them into? What, 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 is, he, what is he getting at with these seven statements? And that is 
really what ends up being a defense of this prophecy. he, 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 He legitimizes his message to the people by saying, well, I'm preaching this message to you, so that must have a cause, and that's the Lord. We read this in verses 7 through 8. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? The point here flows out of the illustration. You've read through this passage who knows how many times in your lifetime, and you say, what in the world is the reason for the placement here? And and the point is really, he's aiming at verses 7 through 8, and he uses 3 to 6 to kind of bring us there. The point flows from the illustration, cause and effect. He gets them to agree to say, yes, I agree, every effect has a cause. And then he quickly says, in essence, this. Well, then you must agree that my prophecy of destruction also has a cause, and that cause is the Lord. He's he's getting them to say, well, I guess I better listen to this prophecy. I guess I I must be compelled to listen. He puts them, in essence, between a rock and a hard place. You see, in verse 7, we are told that God reveals his plans to who? What does verse 7 say? His prophets. God does not do anything, according to this verse, unless he tells the prophets. Do we have a New Testament equivalent to this particular verse? We do. And if you want to jot down the New Testament equivalent to verse 7, it is going to be Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. And we read this. Long ago, Many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. You see that parallels verse 7 of Amos 3? What what does verse 2 of Hebrews 1 say? But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Amos says God speaks through his prophets, Hebrews in the New Testament now says that the Lord is speaking through his son, Jesus Christ. The words of Christ are in the Bible. They are the greatest authority possible, meaning that what we have in Scripture is true, reliable, trustworthy, and something to submit to. There's there's a parallel here going on between Amos and Hebrews. And in Amos, we are told that God speaks to his prophets about what he's going to do, And he tells them, and they must listen. And then in Hebrews, we hear God speaks to us through his Son, Jesus Christ. We have those words here for us, and thus this carries authoritative weight for us. And there's one more thing about God speaking, and that is this. When he speaks, his people evangelize. And that is the point of verse 8. Okay? Verse 8 says this, The lion, or the Lord, has roared, or spoken concerning his judgment. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? What does he return to now in verse 8? The cause and effect structure. 
and you see I, I've included that in your outline for you. You see that he's cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect. Yeah, we agree to that. Well, then you should agree to this cause and effect too. This is the final cause and effect that the Lord has, has roared, and so therefore the response is to fear. The Lord has spoken, and therefore the effect is that one should prophesy. Here's the point of verse 8. Amos heard the Lord roaring, or the lion in this verse, meaning that the Lord was about to pounce or about to judge Israel. Amos also heard the words of the Lord. So here's the point. What was Amos supposed to do? That, that's the cause and effect relationship. Amos is saying, you agree to this cause and effect, this cause and effect, this cause and effect. Well, let me give you another cause and effect. The Lord spoke. Effect, I prophesy. The Lord spoke. Here's what he said. Here's this recorded. Proclamation. What, was, what, what choice did Amos have? What was he supposed to do? Was he supposed to pull a Jonah? Was he supposed to walk away? What this passage then functions as is the rationale for the preaching of Amos. Here's what he's saying. Hey, Israel, uh, I know that you might get mad about all of this, but listen, uh, I heard God speaking, and uh, what was I supposed to do? I, I had to tell you his message. This is, or should be, the rationale behind every pastor, every preacher. Well, let's, let's, let's bring the parallel here, okay? Amos is saying, I heard the Lord speaking, so what was I supposed to do? I had to tell the message. Here's the, the parallel for, for the Christian today. I mean, I read the Bible, and I read about God's wrath and his grace, and so what choice did I have? Be quiet? You, you, want, you want me to be silent about the gospel? I, I read that God is judging the world, and he's also saving people through his son, Jesus Christ, and I'm supposed to shut my mouth? God has spoken. What, what else am I going to do but prophesy? What else am I going to do but evangelize? This is cause and effect. This is the rationale behind Christian evangelism. We open up the Bible as Christians. We learn of God's roaring, that is to say his wrath poured out on uh, people in hell for all of eternity. And then we also read about his grace in the Bible, how his grace abounds more and more and more and more and the love that he set on his people. We learn about this in the gospel of Jesus Christ and then we proclaim that message. What else should we do? What else are you supposed to do? This is who we are as Christians. We are proclaimers of truth. We are proclaimers of the gospel. We are to proclaim the whole counsel of God. We are to proclaim all of his word. We are not permitted to pick and choose which portion we will preach and which portion we will conceal. We are to conceal none of it, and we are to proclaim all of it. I mean, can you, can you imagine Amos as some modern-day, run-of-the-mill, you know, 
dime a dozen evangelical pastor type. Imagine that message coming to Israel. Amos walks up to his uh, pastoral leadership team and he says, guys, I've got a a real great message. This is going to be a good one. And I think it's going to be a big hit. And his team, you know, of course, takes a look at the, the message and they says, man, uh, Amos, there is a lot of judgment in this. You are going to ostracize a lot of Israelites. Can, can you imagine? Let's, let's tone down the language a little bit, okay? Word like judgment, eh, probably not a good pick, Amos, okay? We're, lion roaring, no. Let's throw that one out. Let's reevaluate this as a team together and, and kind of work on this. You might offend or ostracize some Israelites. You might upset the apple cart a bit. What, 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 if, what if you use that really, what if you use that thin word and they didn't, they didn't want to come back and listen to another message? You might, you might lose a future chance to preach the gospel to them because of these words. Please, just let's, let's, let's they, they might never trust in Yahweh. Let's tone this down a bit, make it a little bit more friendly. And then, of course, the PR guy jumps in and um, he reminds Amos that the phones are going to be ringing off the hook if he preaches this kind of a series. And it would be better if he just, just focused on the positive attributes of God. Don't focus on any of the harsh, just only the, the forgiveness is what we want to talk about. So, of course, Amos really prizing the insight of his pastoral leadership team. He gets on to work and gets on the revisions, and he cuts out all the judgment sayings in the book, and he replaces them with things like this. Israel, do you feel far from the Lord? Have you listened to all the haters out there? Your problem is that you just don't trust yourself enough, and you need to look within a little bit more, right? Or he says, since the prophet Hosea recently was on the scene, he says, have you suffered trauma from that fundamentalist preacher, Hosea? Have, have you, have you, has he said some harsh things that have offended you? Well, you just need to claim the Lord's blessing and just think positive thoughts because those kinds of prophets are crazy. Look at the text. What is Amos saying here? What am I supposed to do? I'm preaching the word of the Lord. I'm not permitted to modify. I'm not permitted to change. I'm not permitted to make this more palatable to you. God spoke and I preach. I I don't know why that something is incredibly unhealthy in, in the church in America today. That, that we have the audacity to say, let me trim this out and trim that out and modify this and change this. We either have this or we have nothing. We, I, I am a mailman. You are, you, we are to deliver the mail that God has given us to people. God changes hearts anyway, so why are, why are we so concerned that we're going to be the ones to manipulate the message in such a way as to make it receptive? God, God knows human hearts better than we do. God is the one who works in human hearts. 
And so God's message is the message that's going to work to change the lives of people. We are proclaimers of truth. We are called to do the same thing. Today's passage is about judgment that God is pouring out on Israel, but it's also about more than that. It's about Amos and the compulsion that he is under to preach the word. And we are called to be driven in the same way. We are called to have the courage, to have the guts, to have the backbone to preach the gospel. And if I had to identify a New Testament passage that parallels this verse, it would be 1 Corinthians chapter 9 in verse 16, where Paul says, If I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul says, I am under compulsion to preach the gospel. Necessity is laid upon me. I must preach the word. This is the same for us. Go and look up any of your biblical heroes of the faith. Go look up any one of them. Go look up the prophets in the Old Testament. Go go, uh, uh, look at John the Baptist and look at Jesus Christ. Look at... Uh, uh, um, Paul, look at, look at uh, Augustine, look at the Reformers, look at the Puritans, look at whoever it is that you're saying this person is a hero of the faith. Every one of them had to make people feel uncomfortable. And every one of them had to upset the apple cart somewhere. I'm, I'm not saying, don't misunderstand this, I'm not saying that we are to be chaotic. I'm saying we are to be bold. There's a difference there. We are to be bold. We like to read about men with backbones, but we don't like to be men with backbones. And we are called to be men with backbones. We are called to preach the truth Not to just sit around the coffee shop and talk about how great the reformers are or how great this person was or how great that person was. And man, look at him, how he he gave it to them really and he told them the truth and he was... Anybody can do that. We are called to preach. We're not called to be spectators. And I'm not talking about just pastors being called to preach. When I say preach, I'm using it in a broader sense, not just preaching behind the pulpit... I'm saying preaching the gospel to your neighbors and your co-workers and so on and so forth. Here's the reality. We are all on the Titanic. Every one of us. We are all dying. Nobody knows when the last moment of your life on this earth will be. Could be today, could be 50 years from now, I don't know. Nobody knows when that's going to be. But there is a mission and there is urgency. And I love the story of John Harper who went around and found people drowning and called them to repentance in Christ. That's, that's, when, you, when you go out to, work, to your 9 to 5 tomorrow... People you are surrounded by 
are in that moment drowning. May not, they may not die in the next five minutes, but at some point they're going to. And we are called to call them to repentance in Christ. We need to look to the example that we have here, of course, with Amos, who heard God's word and faithfully preached it. We are to say, along with Amos, I read about the gospel, and what else did you want me to do? I just need to simply, I'm under compulsion to preach the word. We must preach the word that we have in front of us and deliver it to a lost and dying world, and we must do it with courage and boldness, even if it results, and it will result, in us becoming unpopular. You, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't be held in high esteem by the world, okay? I mean, just look at us, okay? Look at us misfits here, okay? <laughs> have you looked at yourself lately? Look at us. <laughs> Who are we, <laughs> okay? Why do we clamor so much to be held in esteem by your Facebook friends? I don't know. <laughs> like, why do we clamor? For that, we need to serve Christ. I have four points of application today um, from the message. The first one is simply to listen when God speaks. Of course, this comes from verse 1 with the simple statement, hear this word. God has given to us his word, the Bible, and we are held accountable to it. God, as Hebrews says, has spoken in the past to the prophets. He has given a word directly to these prophets in the past. But it says specifically, now he speaks to us through his son, through Christ, which we have that here. Okay? We believe that the canon is closed, meaning that God is not continuing to reveal things to us through direct speaking revelation to us, but that we have his word and that we are to listen when he speaks, and it's right here. That means read the Bible, by the way. Conform your life to it. The second point of application uh, comes from the parallel that we uh, highlighted between Amos and Hebrews chapter 12, where we are not to um, uh, disparage the Lord's discipline of his own children. Expect corrective discipline when you disobey. Um, God says in verse 2, you only have I known, and so therefore I'm going to punish you here. Now, I want to re-emphasize, as I did a moment ago, that corrective discipline is not the same as condemnation. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But if we do stray, God is going to bring us back on the path. The third point of application is believe that the Lord is sovereign over all things. This application is coming directly from verse 6 that says, Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? This does not mean that all your questions are answered. This does not mean that you will be able to say, Ah, yes, I finally know why God permitted this disaster to take place in my life. doesn't mean that. It does mean that he knows, and I'm okay with that. One person has said one time that God's people live 
not on explanations, but on promises. And that's a pretty good word. You don't need to have an explanation to why this happened or why that happened or why that happened. What do you need to live on a promise that I will never leave you or forsake you, that all things work together for good for those who God calls? Romans 8.28. The final application is recognize that you are under compulsion to preach the gospel. You are compelled to preach the word. This, of course, comes from verse 8. And that simply says, the Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? So what are you waiting for? Preach the gospel message to the world. What is that message? What is the gospel message? What is it that Amos exhorts us to preach? What is it that the Bible exhorts us to preach? What message have we heard and that we are to proclaim? Well, here's the message. Judgment is coming. God graciously forgives. You must repent and believe on Christ, and he will bear your punishment in your stead and welcome you into eternity with him. Let me say that again, okay? What is this message that we are called to preach? And by the way... We are getting to, I told you at the beginning of this series in Amos, this concludes with a beautiful message of God's grace. We're kind of going through the judgment portions right now. But if we were to take Amos as a whole, and we were to take the Bible as a whole, we would know that for all who repent and believe, there is hope of forgiveness. God's judgment does not have to fall on you if you will but only believe in the gospel. So let me say that again. What is this message? It is this. Judgment is coming for your sin, but God graciously forgives. You must repent and believe on Christ, and he will bear the punishment in your stead and welcome you into eternity with him. Only way. Only way. No other way. No other path. No other means. No, no other... You can't work yourself to do enough good to be worthy. We are utterly unworthy, and we are in need of Christ's redemptive grace. Believe on him. He is sufficient. Thank you, God, for your grace to us. We thank you for the gospel and for Christ. Help us now as we uh, look to uh, the Lord's Supper that we may find hope in the message that you have given to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.